Before you see it, turn to someone, give them a fist bump and say, goodbye, heat dome. <laughs> goodbye, heat dome. At least, at least, Lord willing, it is gone and will never come back. I know it's going to be hot next week, but man, it was awful last week. Um, hey, if you are a journey person, let me remind you, tomorrow begins our week of prayer that kicks off our fall season and our back-to-school season. We would love to invite all of you to come and pray with us 6 to 7 a.m., Monday through Friday, either here or watching online. A lot of our businessmen, women, a lot of our moms getting their kids ready for school are going to watch online. A lot of our guys that travel are going to listen in the car, but we'd love for you to set aside 6 to 7 a.m. to pray every day this week. And then on Saturday, we're going to pray from 9 to 10 a.m. before we have a big breakfast together out in our atrium. We, as we begin the fall, we are going to start with prayer. Um, If you say, I've never prayed for an hour before, come tomorrow morning. We'll sing two songs. There'll be about a 10 or 12 minute devotional. And then we'll give you some prayer prompts that will help you spend about 30 minutes just talking to God. It will be one of the most impactful weeks of the year. So if you can, please come and pray with us. Let me remind you also, because you have an opportunity here, two weeks from today, we have what we call our NFL kickoff Sunday every year. Casey Wolf will be here. We ask everyone to wear your favorite team jersey. Casey Wolf is here for those who are kids and those who are kids at heart who haven't got your picture with him yet. You'll be able to do that um, at our 8, 9, 30, and 11 o'clock services. This service is not really for our church as much as it's for our church to use to invite your friends. So if you've been thinking about those people who are friends with your kids and you're like, man, that family I think really needs Jesus. I think they really need a good church. This is one of those Sundays that you might be able to get them to a little easier than most. So plan on September 10 to bring somebody with you who loves the Chiefs. Uh, it's going to be a fun Sunday as we kind of kick off the NFL season. Hopefully, Zach, the Chiefs are 1-0 that day because they kick off against the Detroit Lions, who are your team. You're going to wear a Lions jersey that day even if they lose, aren't you? Yeah, so we pray the Chiefs are 1-0. If not, Zach, we're going to make you do the welcome, and they're going to boo you right off the stage on that day. Um, So September 10th is a big day. Hey, if you have your Bible study, Matthew chapter 27 is where we're hanging out in our Bible study text today. We're in week six of a series called It Is Finished. And we are marching towards the end of the book of Matthew. We're finishing the book of Matthew. But more than that, we're finishing the ministry, the mission, the life death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through this series. Last week, we found ourselves on the morning of Good Friday. Good Friday is about a 12-hour period of time from sunup Friday to sundown Friday in Scripture that Christians call good because of what happened on it. It was good for us, but not good for Jesus. In this 12 hours of time, Matthew gives us as much details of what happened on this day when the sun came up before the sun came down, almost more than anyone. Matthew gives us 61 verses in this 12-hour time period. Mark gives us 47. John gives us 55. Luke gives us one more, 62. But Matthew really helps us understand this 12 hours of time. Last week, we were at roughly sunup to plus three hours. So 5.30, 5.45 a.m. to maybe 8.30, 8.45 a.m., 6 to 9 a.m. Last week, we walked through the first three hours of Good Friday, and we learned what Matthew wanted to tell us. We learned about Judas's death. We learned about Pilate's contemplation and his passive kind of spiritual movement. Last week, we learned about Barabbas, and we learned that all of us have a cross with our name written on it where our sin has to be punished, but Jesus said, um, I'll die on that if you don't want to. So last week, we learned a picture of the gospel through the first three hours of Good Friday. Today, we're gonna look at the next three hours of Good Friday because Jesus last week was handed over to be crucified. And today we're going to walk from about 9 a.m. to noon on Good Friday. And then next week we'll finish Good Friday. 
as we learn today, we're going to see two really important things about Jesus. Number one, we're going to learn that he is and was and continues to be the king of the Jews. This was a messianic Old Testament title for the savior of the world, the king of the Jews. Let's read a little bit and then let's talk a little bit. We're going to be in Matthew 27, starting in verses 27, going through verses 32, and then we'll talk. It says, then the governor's soldiers, you might underline or circle those two words. Those are Roman soldiers who serve under the governor Pilate, took Jesus into the praetorium. I want you to go ahead and circle that word or underline it too. In just a minute, I'm going to show you a picture of where that was so you can kind of wrap your head around this. And they gathered the whole company of soldiers around Jesus. They stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. And they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene, that's northern Africa, named Simon, and they forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Matthew gives us enough information to be able to know exactly where we are in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Um, so I want to show you if I can. I'm going to put up a series of three pictures just to help you understand where Jesus is. So go ahead and throw those pictures up, guys, if you would. If we were kind of hovering in a drone on the southeastern corner of the Temple Mount, this is what we would be looking at 2,000 years ago, kind of the southern steps of the temple. Solomon's colonnade is kind of that red-roofed area there. The old Jewish temple, the outbuildings would have been where the Jewish government met. And on the edge, circled in red, is what was called Antonia Fortress. The Antonia Fortress was where Rome set up shop in Jerusalem. It's where they kept their garrison of soldiers, and they put it right on the edge of the Temple Mount because as the place where the Jewish people not only did life and religion and government, it was the place where the most uproars happened, and literally they had a doorway straight to the Temple Mount to kind of suppress any revolution or riot that was beginning. I want to take you to the front door of the Antonia Fortress. Josephus, the Jewish historian, really helps us understand what it looked like. So this would have been walking into the front door of the Antonia Fortress, just in the bottom corner of that picture, you can still see the Temple Mount there. Uh, Matthew says Jesus was in this building, in the Praetorium, surrounded by Roman soldiers, and they're beating him and they're mocking him, and they are calling him the King of the Jews. Now, here is what is fascinating to me as a little bit of a Bible historian who spent some time in the Holy Land. I want to go to the next picture on this slide. This would have been a picture. There's the Antonia Fortress kind of in the foreground. You can see just the corner of the Temple Mount, kind of in the middle left-hand side. And circled at the top is a location that today, if you've been to Jerusalem, is the Jaffa Gate. But this in the time of Jesus was Herod's palace. I'm going to leave this picture up because the title of our Bible study today is The Beginning and the End. And I want you to see how crucial it is to Matthew that you understand that Jesus is the king of the Jews. We're gonna put these two facilities together in just a minute, but we have to go back first. I wanna go back three decades to a little village seven miles south of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. We read that there a virgin named Mary and her fiance Joseph had a baby that they named Jesus, and government officials called Magi or wise men from the far east traveled all the way to Jerusalem to worship this baby that they said was born as the king of the Jews. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 2, 7, we find them in Herod's palace, 
And they're talking to Herod saying, we have come to worship the king of the Jews. And Herod said, I would like to worship the king of the Jews as well. But he didn't plan to worship him. In fact, the man in ultimate authority in those days sucked, uh, um, sentenced the king of the Jews to death by killing all the baby boys in, Jerusalem, uh, in Bethlehem. Now we know that those, that one family, Mary and Joseph and Jesus escaped, they fleed to Egypt and they were assisted in their life and in their mission in the region and by the people of Northern Africa until it was time to go home to Nazareth and then the people of Northern Africa kind of helped them take the next stages of their journey. That was three decades before what we just read. But if we pick up in today's reading, less than 50 yards from the temple, that you can see there. Jesus is in this building. Less than a quarter mile. It's a seven minute walk from where at the beginning of Jesus' life he was called the king of the Jews by Herod and sentenced to death. He's now surrounded by government officials not from the far east but the far west, Romans. And the man in ultimate authority on this day has also sentenced Jesus to die. And eventually, as Jesus lives on his mission, a man from North Af Africa would assist him in achieving, getting to where he needed to go, the cross. But they are all saying the same thing three decades and hundreds, if not thousands of miles apart. They are saying that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Now, I need you to see this. Regardless of the circumstances, the statements made about Jesus from the beginning to the end of his life were correct. Regardless of the circumstances, Herod wanting to worship the king of the Jews. No, he didn't. Regardless of the circumstances, Pilate saying this is the king of the Jews. He didn't believe that. Regardless of the circumstances, the statements were correct. Jesus was the one that the world had been waiting for, known as the king of the Jews, who would come rescue people spiritually. Psalm 113.3 prophesied it this way, from the rising of the sun, the far east, to the place where it sets, the far west. The name of the Lord will be praised. People will recognize that Jesus is the king of the Jews. The people of the Far East, the Magi, recognize that. In verse 54, next week, we'll see one of the Roman soldiers that was mocking Jesus at the foot of his cross would recognize that. From the Far East to the Far West, people would be talking about and calling Jesus God's Messiah. The name of the Lord will be praised. Herod wasn't worshiping him. He was mocking him. Pilate's soldiers weren't worshiping him. They were mocking him. But their words pointed out truth. Jesus was the king of the Jews that the world was waiting on to connect them to God. It's interesting. In Philippians chapter 1, we see kind of a similar scenario being played out. The apostle Paul is in prison, and he's in prison because people hate Jesus, and somehow they have morphed into Jesus' followers in order to get him in trouble and thrown in jail. And he says in Philippians 1, there are some people talking about Jesus out of envy. There are some people talking about Jesus out of selfish ambition. They like just, they're trying to figure out how to benefit their life by talking about Jesus. There are some people talking about Jesus because of false motives. They're trying to get me in trouble. But he says, what matters is that people are talking about Jesus because he is the king of the Jews. In theology, we call this the doctrine of the preeminence of Christ. And here's what it means. Jesus is God's plan A and there is no plan B. This is what the Bible teaches us. And when we hear Jesus again being called the king of the Jews, we step back in time and forward in time and we see that this has been God's plan all the time, that a king of the Jews would come and rescue his people and Gentiles, non-Jewish people who would put their faith in him. We read about this preeminence in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, 
where we read that Jesus was the very image of God that came to planet Earth. We read that Jesus is the one who was over creation, and Jesus is the one who is over Christianity. Jesus is the one who connects people to God through the cross. We're told in Colossians 1, all things exist by him. He created them, and all things exist for him. He wants to use them to connect the world to God. And this is not just a New Testament Christian belief. This is a Hebrew Old Testament, Old Covenant, Hebrew Bible. We would say on this side of it, this is a Judeo-Christian ethic that God had always planned someone to connect the world to him, a savior who would be the king of the Jews. Isaiah would talk about it 700 years before Jesus was born. In Isaiah 48, 12, the prophet Isaiah would say, listen to me, Jacob, speaking on behalf of God, Israel, whom I have called, I am he. I am the first. I am the last. I am the only source of your salvation. I am he. Now, here's what's funny reading this in 2023. This has become for testosterone-fueled athletes and young men. The way to say today, I'm the man, is to say, I'm, I'm him. I'm, I'm him. Um, it's weird. It took me a while to figure out what it meant, but after watching enough athletes mic'd up on shows and after being around kids long enough, now I know when a young man says, I'm him, what they're saying is, I'm the man. We had at student camp this year a really fun theme night um, that was called Thrift Shop Homecoming. Is that what it was called, Zach? Thrift Shop Homecoming. Where all the kids dressed up like we dressed up for real homecoming in the late 80s and the early 90s. So they looked like us, but they were making fun of us. And they had like this formal little type dance. And as a part of this thrift shop homecoming, a lot of the junior and senior girls were asking the sixth and seventh grade guys to be their dance, their date to this little dance. And they were getting a lot of it on video and it was awesome. Except for one young man who thought, I'm not gonna wait for an older girl to ask me. As a matter of fact, one of our seventh graders was asked by a senior to be uh, her date, and he was like, no, I got bigger and better plans. <laughs> and they captured this kid on video. I'm sitting in service one night, and here's this kid, and he's mic'd up, and he's saying what he's going to do. He introduces himself. He's going to be a seventh grader. He has his eye on one of our college interns who's going to be a senior in college. <laughs> and he said, I'm getting ready to ask her um, to thrift shop homecoming tonight. He's inviting the cameras to come along. What he told his friends is, I'm going to make sure I ask her in front of the guy she used to date because I want him to see her say yes to me as well. So like this, like, this guy's got some things going, going on that we're praying for, um, and we're praying for his mom and dad. He says, I'm going to do this because I'm him. I'm him. I'm that guy. I'm the man. And he did it, and she said yes, and then he let her know, my mom is nine years older than my dad, so... Just in case you're wondering, I was like, he is him. Like that, like that kid, he got some Holy Spirit in him. You know what I'm saying? It's like, wow, I'm him. He was in our eight o'clock service melting into the floor as I was telling this story. And his mom officially apologized at the end of the service um, that he did. it. Listen to what God is saying. God says in Luke 48, 12, 2,700 years before this kid, I'm him. I'm him. I'm the one who saves you. I'm the one who redeems you. I'm the one who rescues you. I am the first and last. I'm him. I'm the one you're looking for. In Revelation 21, 6, Jesus said it this way. It's done. 
I'm the alpha, the omega that was the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. In John 4, we meet Jesus. Tell, uh, we see Jesus meet a woman and tell her that salvation is like living water inside of you that wells up unto eternal life. This is Jesus saying, I am the one who offers you salvation. In Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, it's Jesus being confident of this. It's Jesus who began a good work in you. It's Jesus who will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Revelation 21 says, it's Jesus who saves you. Philippians 1 says, it's Jesus who sanctifies you. What does that mean? Makes you more and more and more and more like Jesus. What we're learning is that your faith walk, if it has begun, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's because of Jesus. But your faith walk is not finished. It says in Philippians 1, 6, your faith walk is not finished until the day you meet Jesus, which means I don't know where you are in your faith walk today, but you're not done. Turn to someone and say, you're not finished. Like, you're not finished. If you're, like, if you're not meeting Jesus by the end of tonight, then tomorrow you've got a growth step. Our faith walk begins with Jesus, but then it continues every day with Jesus. He's engaged in your growth, in your discipleship, in every area of your life. He wants to make you more like him. The question is, will you respond? Are you even aware? Are you listening? Or is Jesus just a decision you made in your past so you can have a placement in eternity in your future? Like, is Jesus just a past and future thing? Or is he a today thing? Because Philippians says he's a today thing every day to make you more like Jesus. So for some of you, your next step is baptism. We had dozens of people last week who were like, yeah, I need to do that. What are you waiting on? October 1, take your next step. Jesus will help you. For some of you, your next step is growth track. You heard me talk about it a little bit up front before we took the offering. It's the place at our church where you go from just being in church for one hour, one hour and 15 minutes on Sunday to figuring out how to live in spiritual community figuring out who God created you to be, how God created you to serve, and then doing that within the mission of God's church. For some of you, it's discipleship tracks, which are kind of our small group ministry to help you learn spiritually. Man, I hope you don't leave today before you take a lap around the atrium and figure out what is it that you wanna learn spiritually that we can help teach you? What are you going through right now that you need to know? What does the Bible say about this specific thing? Those of you who are like, I don't know anyone at the church. I don't have any Christian friends. Join a men's or a women's group. Like, Don't leave this season at our church before you commit to growing because every day we're supposed to be growing. Hebrews 12, 2 says it this way, keep looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is not just the person we meet in our past and we reconnect with after we're dead. Jesus is the person who begins our salvation and then every day helps us finish what he has started in us. Had a great lunch last Monday uh, with two of our missionaries from Scotland. Uh, They've hosted two journey groups, uh, one in May, Uh, one in June that have come over to help them do ministry. And we just connected to say, how did it go? Do you like us? Do we like you? Are we going to keep moving forward um, as kind of a ministry team together? And it was so fun talking with them about the impact you, your giving, your going, um, your kids going has had on them. But Rodney very specifically talked about follow-up conversations he's been having because our teens went to basically do an evening kind of day camp uh, after school, they would invite high school, middle school kids to come hang out with them. And they had like 55, 60 kids that would come and hear about Jesus. And he said, you have to understand, not only had these kids before this week probably heard nothing about Jesus, most of them don't even know a Christian. They don't have a single Christian in their family. 
There are Christians at their school, but they've never met one. So he said, the win for us is to be able to tell these kids, these kids from America that you're hanging out with, they love Jesus. He said, we don't call them Christians. Because he said, the church of Scotland has drifted so far that Christian means something different in Scotland probably than it means in America. So we just talk about how they love Je- how, how Christians love Jesus. And he said, you know, in Northern Ireland where they work, there's still so much friction between the Protestants and the Catholics. He said, we really don't use the word Christian because it means something different in Northern Ireland than it means in America. So he said, we just talk about Christians as people who love Jesus. And he said, what's really cool, as I've been meeting with these kids since your students have left, he said, student after student after student after student has asked me the exact same question. And he said, here's the question. At some point they say, Rodney, are you telling me all those kids love Jesus? He's like, yep. Every one of them. You tell me all those, I mean, they're normal. They had fun with us. Are you sure all those kids love Jesus? And he said, yes, all those kids love Jesus. He said, I've had that conversation over and over and over again because they're trying to make sure it's okay to maybe be a teenager who loves Jesus. Question, do people describe you as a Christian or somebody who loves Jesus? Do they know about your faith, your church, Or do they know about your friendship with a man named Jesus? When people talk about your faith, do they talk about your love for Jesus? Because you're just always talking about him, hanging out with him, spending time with him, your whole life shaped by him. Are you just someone who has like a religious mark on you? What we learn is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the one who came to start our faith, but he's the one who every day works to finish our faith. He is the king of the Jews, but number two, we also see on Good Friday the mission of the king. Look at verses 33 through 44. It says, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Let's go back three decades again to a place very near the palace of Herod. Let's go back to a little town seven miles from Jerusalem. And let's remember as we look at the end of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Remember those wise men, those magi, those government officials from the Far East? They came to Jesus. There were probably far more than three, but we always say three because they brought three. Remember the gifts given to Jesus that symbolize both the beginning and end of his ministry? Gold, which we know is a gift given for a king. Frank incense. I always break that word in two so that people understand the gift was incense, Frank was the type. It's an odd type of incense. I don't know that we call that that anymore now that people have that name. But frankincense was a gift for a priest. Priests use incense in their worship rituals. And myrrh, of course, was kind of an embalming fluid and fragrance. It was a gift for burial. At Jesus' beginning, he was called by the religious rulers of the day a king. 
and a priest who a big portion of his life was going to be about his death. This was three decades earlier. Let's jump back to the text today. We read a physical sign was hung over Jesus on the cross, and it said that Jesus was a what? Anybody? The king of the Jews. At the beginning of his life, he was called a king. At the end of his life, he was called a king. According to Hebrews, Jesus was crucified because he is our great high priest. He's the one who stands between God and humanity to mediate for them. At the beginning of his life, Jesus was seen as a priest. At the end of his life, Jesus was seen as a priest. And the eternal mission of the king was to die on that cross. It was acknowledged at the beginning of his life, part of his mission is going to be his death. And acknowledged here again in Matthew chapter 27, part of his mission will be his death. But look how much it was misunderstood by the religious leaders of the day. Look at verses 42 and 43 one more time. It says he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. I don't know if you saw it, but in those two verses... We see seven statements, not all of them said, but all of them stated very, very clearly that are a very simple picture for us of the gospel mission of Jesus. What did they say about Jesus as he hung on the cross? Let's look at these seven things. They said he saved others, and Jesus did. They said he can't save himself, but what was true is that he didn't save himself because that was not his mission. They said he's the king of Israel, and he was from the rising of the sun far east to the setting of the sun far west. He was the king of Israel. They said him, let him come down from the cross to prove. He didn't need to come down from the cross to prove he was the king because he came out of the grave to prove he was a king. They said he trusted in God, and he did. They said let God rescue him, but that was not the plan. God was more interested in rescuing us because God wanted us because God is the great I am, and the Son of God, Jesus, is the great Savior. Do you see the very clear picture, yet the very clear understanding in these two verses of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing? He saved others. He did. He did it in his life, and he did it in his death. They said he can't save himself, but the truth is he didn't save himself. He was the king of Israel. And he was not trying to prove he was the king of Israel by getting off the cross. He was trying to prove he was God's eternal Messiah by coming out of the grave. He did all of that because he trusted in God. And God's plan was to rescue us, not him. Because God is the great I am who is interested in having a relationship with humanity. And the son of God is his savior who makes that happen. Please do not miss the power of the cross that we read today. Please do not miss that Jesus' mission was to defeat the power of sin, not the power of the cross. Jesus did not get off the cross because that wasn't his mission. His mission was to stay on the cross as a penalty for sin, as a punishment for sin, until he had paid for all the sins of the world so that those who would receive him as their substitute might have life in Jesus. John 3.16 is a verse that so many have, who have grown up around church know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. When we read that verse, it's very clear that Jesus didn't come to not die. Jesus came so we might not die spiritually. It wasn't his purpose to live forever. 
It was his purpose that we could live forever. It wasn't his purpose to come down off the cross. It was his purpose to die on the cross so that we would not have to. And I don't know that the scholars who put numbers in the Bible could have ever intended to do this. But if you just put a one in front of John 3.16, it becomes another Bible verse that's pretty powerful. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. John 3.16 said his mission wasn't to survive the cross. His mission was to endure it. Because by doing that, he would show how much he loved us. I hate the phrase that we use in our modern world. Love is love. Because it's unbiblical. Because the Bible tells us exactly what love is in 1 John 3.16. And it's this. This is love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Here's what you need to understand from today. The bottom line is this. Jesus is God's plan A. And there is no plan B. Which is why the cross of Jesus is our connection to God. And it is where we pause today and it's where we end today. But I'm going to be honest with you. I have struggled all week. And I continue to struggle today ending a message with Jesus on the cross. You say, why? Because he's not a character in a book to me. He's my friend. And I love him. And when I see Jesus on the cross today, it hurts my heart. I wish he would not have had to do that for me or for anyone else, but he did. And I've struggled all week long ending this text in verse 44 because I thought a friend would not leave Jesus hanging there for a week. A friend would at least let him come down and be buried and then we'll talk about the rest later. It feels unjust for me to just leave him hanging on the cross like this episode of the TV show has ended and next week we'll pick up the cliffhanger. I don't like seeing my friend dying on a cross. Yet this is where we leave him in today's text as we close this message. Why? Why would we leave him hanging on a cross? Two reasons. One, according to today's text, the place, the cross is a place where rebels start their relationship with Jesus if they want to. So it's an important place for us because the cross is where people who've been spiritually rebellious all their life can stop, repent, and turn, turn towards Jesus and the cross is where rebels start a relationship with the God of heaven. But the cross is also, I believe, the place where we need Jesus the most and I believe it's the place where we've been impacted by him the most. Because the cross continues to be not just the place you came to when you were saved. The cross continues to be the place you run to every time you sin. And if you're not aware of it yet, it's probably every week of your life, if not every day of your life. The cross is the place we keep going back to to say, God, I'm sorry for this sin. I'm going to have to cash this one in at the cross again. I don't want to pay for it, but I know Jesus is willing. The cross is not just where we came alive. The cross is where we must live to stay in a relationship with Jesus. So today we end with Jesus on the cross. In the early 1700s, uh, there was a young guy whose dad was a pastor who was a poet and a musician who liked to write poems and songs about Jesus. His name was Isaac Watts. He became one of the great hymn writers of the historic Christian church. 
At the time in the late 1700s, you weren't allowed to sing anything but the exact words of scripture in the Church of England or in the Catholic Church. But the reformers had started teaching people to write poems and music about how the gospel had personally impacted their life. And Watts was one of the first to write songs about the cross and how much, they meant, how much it meant to him. And he wrote a song called, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed? But the chorus of it remains famous nearly 300 years later because it says this, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. History tells us another hymn writer about 100 years later was sitting in a church when they sang this song. Her name was Fanny Crosby. And she said, as the words of that song poured over her soul, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. She said, as that song was saying, I realized for the first time in my life, the only way I could let go of my past was if I grabbed hold of the cross. And in that moment, salvation flooded my soul. What has God said to your heart today about his cross and your need to live there and to stay there and to be there? As our reflection questions get ready to scroll this morning, the first two, I'm gonna give you a tip for so you can get your head ready. The first one is this. The cross is a place where sin is forgiven. What sin, what stain did you walk in with from this week of life that was hard spiritually that you need to take to the cross and exchange for forgiveness? You can do that in this room this morning. And when I think about Isaac Watts' song, the second question will be this. What burdens of life you're trying to figure out if God cares for you. Did you? Do you need to bring to the cross? Because when you look at the cross, when you see what Jesus did on the cross, and you realize that's how much God loves you, there's nothing in your life that you'll look at and wonder if God cares. Because at the cross, God cares about everything in your life. What burdens do you need to say, God, I've been trying to figure out if you care for this, but, but the cross proves that you do here. As we pray today, what has God said to your heart? How do you need to respond to take a step forward spiritually? God, we pray that you open our hearts to these questions. Holy Spirit, speak your truth through them and let us draw near to the cross of Jesus as we close today's service. In Jesus' name, amen.